0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Welcome to Midtown Business Radio. I'm Michael Lauer. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a very special guest for you. Later on in the show, we're visiting with Justin Miller with Care for AIDS, a nonprofit he founded. But first up, Tom Catherall is here from Here to Serve Restaurants with his PR specialist. Lisa, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great.
0: Tom?
2: I'm fine, thank
0: you. Good. So uh what's new with here to serve? Do you uh hear you own a bunch of restaurants, Tom. I'll be own 14 restaurants. 14, that's a it's yeah. a pretty big number there.
2: Twist, Chow, Strip, Noche, Wine, <laughs> Goldfish. What goldfish.
0: One, one word restaurants is your forte, right? Yeah. That's one Do you word have enough. one named Forte? No, not not yet. That should be next. Uh, maybe we'll, not. We'll see. <laughs> so um tell me a little about how you got started. In, in the cooking business, and
2: I'm a chef, and I've been a master chef. chef, right? I'm a certified master chef. I've been in the restaurant business fifty years. This June, and uh, wow, it's fifty years as a chef.
0: So, what's changed over over those fifty years for you?
2: Well, it, it really the foods came back around. I mean, when I was the apprentice chef, we did everything farm to table. We cut up pigs, cut up sheep, cut up cows, and now that's real trendy. Now, fifty years later, when I've been doing it for the last fifty years, so you never <laughs> stopped doing farm to table. No, I never stopped. Let's, let's I, I never saw a meat in the box before I came to America. Really? So where are you, where are you from? I'm from uh, Newcastle, England, on the border of Scotland.
0: So you've always been doing farm-to-table. Always. And, and, uh, I'm assuming not just in the Atlanta area. We're, we're kind of around uh, about two
2: I've worked all over the world. I've been, been everywhere in the world.
0: Is that kind of the inspiration for for some of
2: your restaurants is is the travel aspect of it? Yeah. I mean, if you want to know Italian food, go to Italy. You know, you won't see it at Olive Garden. <laughs> that makes sense though, right? Yeah. If you want Thai food, go
0: to Thailand and see real Thai. So, you opened 14 restaurants. I'm assuming not all at once. No, about uh, one a year. Wow. I Man, that's a pretty big turnaround. So, what prompted you to start opening up your own restaurants and, and certainly so many? Uh,
2: I only wanted one one restaurant and it was successful so it made sense to do two just like Chick-fil-A they opened
0: one and (laughs) went on and on and on. Yeah but these aren't chains I mean they have different foods each one right?
2: Yeah. Well there's 11 concepts there's four notches. Okay.
0: And so uh, go ahead and go through the restaurants for the listeners. Uh, We have Twist
2: and Shout we've got Strip at Atlantic Station here Okay, just next door to you and we've got four notches we've got Coast on West Paces Ferry
1: Prime at Linux
2: Square, uh, Goldfish at the Mall.
0: Okay, so you but they're all in the Atlanta area. Yeah, they're all in Atlanta. Yeah.
1: And then two new ones in Town Brookhaven, Smash and Shucks.
0: So you've been here at least fourteen years. Uh, one a year, right? I've lived on under thirty years now. Okay, wow. So what did you do before you started opening restaurants? I'm a chef. So um, what, did you work at any one place, or did you?
2: I was corporate chef for Omni Hotels when I came to America, but I looked okay. in Caribbean luxury resort hotels.
0: I oh, bet that was a drag. Yeah, it was terrible. I'm sure. <laughs> you going to retire You try there too? or? I
2: retire? I'm going to retire in Florida. I've got a home down there. I do, oh, cool. do a lot of fishing.
0: So I got to ask, what is your favorite food to cook? Or is there even an even one? Is it kind of like you just cook?
2: Yeah, what those freshest. I mean, that's, that's what inspires chefs when you see a, you know, a bright red snapper with bright eyes or, or a great piece of meat. That's what you get inspired by.
0: So it's it's inspirational cooking is what you're kind of looking for. It's not necessarily, you know, here's the recipe, kind of do it. It's just like a natural thing for you, right? I've been doing it 50 years, so I don't think I need any recipes. Right, yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to the business aspect of this. What are some of the challenges that you found when you started opening restaurants uh, that kind of grew from, from one to the next? Yeah,
2: staffing is always the biggest problem. I mean, we know how to run a restaurant. We know how to staff a restaurant. Waiters are waiters for a short time until they get a real job. Right. So that's very transient part of the restaurant business.
0: So what do you kind of do to to keep us a personnel that maybe starts as a, as a server and moves up? No, we, we, we love to groom in-house
2: managers. All, all our managers really grew in-house. We don't hire outside managers. You've got to work in, in the restaurant and prove yourself.
0: Well, it makes sense. I mean, you want someone who's running a restaurant to know how it works in every aspect of it, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's I mean, the same I, with any business. I've washed dishes before and started at the bottom and then moved to the top. So, Lisa, tell me about some things that you're planning for the restaurants here that, that may be happening in the future.
1: Well, we have a very busy May at All Here to Serve Restaurants, starting with uh, Cinco de Mayo, which we're doing okay. at Cinco de... Well, what what is four in Spanish? Cuatro. Cuatro. Okay. Cuatro de Mayo. We're doing it uh, Sunday, May 4th at Cantina. 7 o'clock. Um, it's a Jezebel party, so we're expecting lots of fun, flirty people to come join us and have tequila. <laughs> um, got to te- have tequila. Got to have tequila. Tequila makes everything better.
0: That's right. Except, except the next morning. And, and, well, and, and Corona. And Corona. And corona. There you
1: go. And then we're, we've got Mother's Day brunch specials at um, most of the restaurants. Um, so smash. Book, book early for Mother's Day. Yeah, book, book uh, early for Mother's Day. But you're
2: slammed on those days, man. Yeah. Yeah. Take exactly. Moment.
1: Um, And also on Saturday is the Kentucky Derby, and Tom can tell you bourbon is hot again. So um, the restaurants have their own mint julep recipes with mint julep cups, and we're going to celebrate the Derby with uh, bourbon and mint juleps. Um, But what I want to talk about, two things. First of all, Fish to Fork is an event that Tom has been asked. He's going to be one of the um, celebrity, chefs. celebrity chefs at this event on oh, Amelia wow. Island Plantation, and it is May 15th, and it all goes back to our, our, our theme this year in the restaurants is um, get fresh with us. And so Fish to Fork is an event that he's been asked to participate in with um, Nation's Best Chefs, Compete for Your Vote for Who's the Best Chef. They actually will go out fishing and whatever they catch it's they, what they cook. is what they cook and they'll get a box of ingredients they won't know what's in there it's kind of like a, are you going like, to record this to it, be it
0: televised or
1: um, well we it's going to be uh, featured i know down in amelia island sure. and um, hopefully that's what we should do we should record it tom yeah. put it up on the internet We'll give it to I you. Mean, I feel
0: like that's a great show idea. Mean, yeah. I would want to watch that. I mean, yeah. it takes it to the next level. I mean, you always have those chop kind of things where they, they yeah. have yeah. to go and find it, but have to catch it, too? I mean.
2: Well, it's not fair to the chefs because I, I do own a fishing boat. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and that my hobby is fishing.
0: I'm sure. But if you go to, you know, yeah. I would say most chefs and say, okay, we know you can cook, but how well yeah. can you farm? Can so it's, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's a different kind of thing, right? Yeah. So absolutely. that's very it's very interesting. So what are some uh, aspects of, of this um, fish to fork besides besides the celebrity chef?
1: Well, it's a, there's a, it's a, you can go on to the Amelia Island um, Omni Amelia Island Plantation website, and there's two ways. It says two ways to enjoy it. There's an event package. You can actually go and participate with the chefs on the boats, and then there's also you can go to the dinners, and there are six chefs involved, and um, they each will create their own dinner according to what they catch. And so it's going to be a fun. Uh, I, of course, will be shopping. I don't fish. I shop. Ah. But um, I'm excited to, to explore Amelia Island, too.
0: So, Tom, tell me a little bit about the name that you came up with for your company, Here to Serve. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean,
2: we're in the restaurant business, and we're here to serve people. You know, if, Without a guest, I mean, even my friend across the table here from Chick-fil-A, you've you got to rely on <laughs> the guests. You know? And so right. we're, we're here to serve you. And I don't want to put it here to serve you. We're here to serve anyone. Anyone. Yeah, uh, right.
0: So, so. You've been doing this for 50 years. How has taste and, and demand changed over these? I know so you the farmer table's kind of swinging back around, but what are some other aspects? Yeah, I mean, thank God for the food channel. I mean, you know, before I people. I bet, yeah. Before, you, you would get rich people that traveled that
2: went to Italy or went to Asia or Tokyo. Right. But the average person didn't really travel over the country. So once the food channel started and people start seeing different foods, octopus. Who want to try that, right? Yeah, they want to try it. I mean,. If you call cal- calamari squid, you would never sell it. So, right. So the, t- <laughs> the TV has been great for
0: the restaurant business. Everyone wants to be a chef. Right. Or at least have one. Yeah. <laughs> <least> have one. <laughs> so you mentioned traveling and, and the ability to travel is a big thing, especially for you know learning the culinary arts. So tell me a little bit about, and Lisa, feel free to chime in on this, oh. the summer passport promotion that you guys have going on.
1: Well, the summer passport promotion was created last year to introduce here-to-serve restaurants to Atlanta again and to let everyone know, everyone knows Prime and Goldfish and Noche, but they didn't realize it was all under one umbrella, that it was all Tom Catherall concepts. So that's how it initially, initially, initially came about. Then it was so uh, successful, we decided to do it this year, and it's we, ever, we actually create passport books and people can come in to the restaurants and pick up a passport uh, begins Memorial Day, runs through Labor Day, and we feature different specials throughout the summer. Corona is our big sponsor. They're giving away uh, travel vouchers. That's cool. And all kinds of fun things. If you get stamps in your passport, so many stamps quali- qualifies you to uh, the drawing for a thousand dollar travel voucher. We so also have cruises? Celebrity Cruise $1000 voucher that's, on Celebrity that's Cruise. Really cool. So it's a fun way of getting people into the restaurants, get a stamp and then to learn also about what each here to serve restaurant has to offer.
0: Now, do you get multiple stamps for going to the same restaurant or do you yes. have to go, like is there max 14 or what's the
1: No, you get stamps for trying a different dish, you get stamps for getting a Corona, you get stamps for being a friend of Toms. We have a friend of Toms program which is a loyalty program. Um, which is very popular. And we have um, specials just for Friend of Tom. You have a Friend of Tom card. You get 10% off your uh, dining experience and 15% off the month of your birthday. And we have people who literally come in with their cards and participate every time they are into one of our restaurants. So the Passport lets you know what specials are at each restaurant and also what days of the week we have different specials. Coast has half uh, off crab legs on Mondays so we have a lot of people coming into coast on Mondays but we want them to come back different days and experience all the different restaurants in different ways
0: well that's a great idea to me I've done a little bit in the food industry I mean I'm just a, a local bagel shop you know nothing crazy but what you realize is that it's your it's not your new customers that that give you the business it's your repeat customers exactly. oh, how do I keep them coming back and so what are some other things that you may have adapted from in the keeping customers area, area. that led you to this great idea. It's a great way to track membership and, and to get new members and, and to give incentives. Well, I, I think there's only one thing that makes a restaurant successful, and that's an awesome navy seat. Not, not yeah, exactly. Not really no, absolutely. Yeah,
2: and and people like to be recognized. People like to be, hello, Mr. Caswell, thanks for coming. Hello, Mr. Jones, great to see you again. People want to be recognized.
0: Well, yeah, it's the service. The, the yeah. here to serve part. I mean, it's not here yeah. to to make good food. It's here to serve yeah. kind of thing.
2: It, I, I think the food and the service are both equally important. Sure,
0: sure.
1: And we're doing a, also a tribute to Tom for the whole summer, uh, fifty years as chef. And we have um, created an ad with uh, in for the Atlanta Magazine and the Atlantan. And it says, and this is what Tom always says: the answer is yes. What's the question?
2: If someone wants. Two so explain bo- that, yeah. Yeah. If someone wants two boiled eggs and a beer. It may sound strange to you, but if they that's what they want, the answer is yes. What's the question? So We, right. talk, we, we try and give it. I see what and, you're saying. In different restaurants that we have, oh, I like the catfish from uh, Asia, but I'm a twist. If one of the managers is not busy, we'll go and get a catfish from Asia and bring it a twist for you.
0: So you've you got to find really good chefs to run this when you're not there. I, I've trained all my chefs. They're all good. Yeah, but how do you pick them? Like, I mean, that's got to be like – I mean, yeah. you got to be super critical. I mean, you have to be. It's your name out yeah. there. It's yeah. your restaurant, yeah. and you've done this for a long time. You're only as good as the last meal. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that training process, how long it kind of takes to get someone up to your snuff.
2: Uh, I mean, most of my chefs stay with me a long time. I've got one chef has been with me 27 years. Wow. He started from the Culinary Institute and stayed with me ever since. My pastry chef, we have our own commissary for all the restaurants, has been with me 27 years. So they have got longevity. You can't. You keep them around. It's hard work, and i pay them well and, and treat them well. But, yeah, we keep them around.
0: Them and the customers. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. So where can people go to learn more about you guys and, and check out your, some of your, your, your yeah. list of restaurants? Then go to h2s.com, which is here to serve restaurants, abbreviated.
1: h2sr.com.
0: h2s h2sr.com? Yes. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out. I know I'm going to do the password program. I can't wait yeah. to get involved in that because I I need to get some better restaurants and be there, a friend of Tom's. I, I, that I hope we can do right after this. It's a friend <laughs> of Tom's. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> you, can, you can sign up online. <laughs> well, how do you feel about hanging out with us when we visit with the yeah, next? Yeah, sure. Kids? All right, it's a pleasure. Next up on Midtown Business Radio, we had his dad in a couple about a month and a half ago on a different show, and we just he told me a little bit about you, Justin. And I had to get you in. I was like, okay, how can I get Justin Miller in here? Now, you are the founder and executive director for Care for AIDS. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And how long have you had this nonprofit?
3: We've been operating for just over six years now.
0: And how old are you? So for the folks that can't see how how long in the tooth you are. (laughs) I'm 26. You're 26. You started this when you were 20. That was when our first project started, yes. So how did you start it? take me through the process. I don't even know what question to ask you right now. It's just like, I can't even imagine starting that at 20.
3: Yeah. Well, I think it, I think it goes back to when I was 18. The moment of inspiration for me came from a a very unlikely source. Um, That source was Bono from U2. Okay. I was 18 years old. I was going to Vanderbilt University. I was pursuing degrees in economics and human and organizational development. I had aspirations of joining the business ranks and uh, maybe becoming a management consultant. Uh, thats what the, that, You had to figure it figured out. That was the track right. I was on. <laughs> exactly. And then there was this curveball that was thrown my way, and it was um, we can no longer accept apathy and passivity towards this crisis called HIV and AIDS that's destroying our planet, it's destroying families, and uh, as a whole, the American culture has not uh, embraced um, that there's a crisis on our hands that we need to respond. And more specifically, there's a faith community, which sure. was important to me, that the church be one of the, the thought leaders and uh, first responders to this issue around the world. And that was a challenge that I was given when I was uh, 19 years old, and I just began to ask the question, right. what do I do with this information that I now have?
0: So, how, what was the trigger point? I mean, was it one thing? Was it a bunch of things? Was it a bunch of information that you kind of found? Was it you piqued your curiosity and went out and got it, or was it an event like how? did It was an
3: event. It was an event in Chicago okay. where I heard Bono speak. Oh, so you went to a was it was it a concert? It or was, was a, it, like it was a, a conference actually. It's okay. called the Leadership Summit. It's uh, out of Willow Creek Community Church up in uh, South Barrington, Illinois. And but then it became a process after that. Like that in, event was a catalyst, but then the process that followed was one of. Uh, intense research and asking what do we do with this and and that led us to the conclusion that there was a there was a bigger story to be told here and the best way to do that would be to actually go to kenya and experience firsthand um, how this disease was devastating it is right uh, yeah it was affecting these communities and uh, and we believe that producing a documentary was going to be the best medium to be able to tell that story uh, when we came back,
0: so you you actually have produced a documentary, <laughs> are you uh, in the process, or has not happened I, I yet? Li- I
3: use that term very loosely. Okay. Um, you know, inexperience, uh, naivety. It was um, we we o- we underestimated um, what a difficult undertaking that was. Um, we did our research, we recruited a team, um, but that trip changed something in us. And what started out as a project to produce a documentary ended up being. The platform to start an organization so the documentary ended up becoming about a six to seven minute short film and instead we threw our energy and efforts behind actually launching this organization so you said okay
0: documentary is not enough i mean yeah it's no. great we'll give it six minutes right but i mean we got to do more yeah so
3: awareness is a is a good first step well yeah and awareness is a, a natural prerequisite to action but we actually wanted to give people a tangible action that they could take to respond to this issue.
0: Right. I think you're right. I think that, you know, it's not really a huge epidemic here. And so they say out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. And what do you kind of say to those people that may not know enough? And I'm sure it may get you a little bit, but how does how do you um, show them how important this is?
3: Well, I believe that that story is the currency of, of nonprofits. And I mean, story obviously spans across for profits sure. as well. Um, each of Tom's restaurants has a unique story to tell, and that's a, about what it keeps bringing people back to that restaurant. But especially with an issue that is, um, so unknown and foreign to people in the U S like we have to do a great job of telling story and helping people not just see it as a, uh, as a statistic or, a number or a devastating crisis that is so overwhelming that it just paralyzes us. But instead, we have to show the family, um, this dad, this mother. um, HIV AIDS is just the tip of the iceberg to what it does to a family when you you think about how it affects them uh, emotionally, physically, economically, what are the impacts on their family, their church, their community. Um, our response is not just the health and human services sure. part of it. We have to address the the holistic need that exists there. And so we have to, to really focus on on the person and, and help people understand that it may be eight thousand miles away, right. but the people we're caring for are, are no different. They don't have the sa- they have the same, you know, fears and struggles and hopes and dreams that people do here. And and we've got the knowledge and the means and the responsibility to, to respond uh, in a way that, that can help us make progress in this crisis.
0: So six years ago, you guys went to Kenya, came back to make a documentary, and started a nonprofit. That's, How many times have you been back since?
3: Uh, I've, I've made about 20 trips to Kenya in the last six years. 20 in six years? <laughs> yeah. Just Kenya or anywhere else? You know, I've, I've traveled around other parts of East Africa, some for pleasure and some for uh, – just research and scouting. Uh, we believe that our, our vision is not just limited to the country of Kenya. Uh, we believe Tanzania is on the, the near horizon. And so, uh, I've made a trip there as well, but I've also just experienced parts of Africa cause they're, uh, it's an incredible place. So what,
0: where exactly is, is the drive that you want to instill in people? Like what, what what is the main drive for the cure? Like, wh- where are you guys helping out? Like, not not physically, but like, what exactly are you guys doing when you go there?
3: Yeah. Well, I ha- let me first say that our our organization on the ground employs fifty full time national Kenyan staff. So you have so, you have a,
0: a physical brick and mortar presence in Kenya.
3: Yes, but our our brick and mortar, we don't actually build. Clinic, clinics or facilities where people come to get help, we actually provide all of our services through the local churches in Kenya. And, um, and I could talk more about why that's strategic later, but um, our, our organization is led on the ground by two dynamic Kenyan men, Cornell and Duncan, and they are part of the inspiration that got this organization started. So when I go, I'm there to, to tell a story to other people that are coming with me, to encourage our team, to serve them in any way I can, Um, But my main function is uh, to tell the story to other people here in the U.S. and invite them into this story. But to your question about what we, we do, I think it can best be summed up in the phrase that we are about preventing orphans. And that's a concept that was really radical to me because I saw in this environment there were so many organizations responding to the overwhelming needs of children. And, and that was an appropriate response, and it still is. There's 1.5 million orphans in Kenya already. So and AIDS we, is a big factor to that. It is, absolutely. But we need to educate them. We need to house them. We need to clothe them. We need to adopt them, and that's all important. But what we found was there was not as many organizations that we're aware of that are working strategically just with parents to ensure that the mothers and fathers of these children can live for another 25 to 30 years and be able to raise and educate their own children in an environment that's much more conducive for a child than being in an orphanage or, you know, God forbid, on the streets. And right. so that's the reality of HIV AIDS today. 20 years ago, it, it was essentially a death sentence. Today, the medication is available. Um, but if once they access the medication, if they are uh, taught how to take it properly, how to have good nutrition, they have the means to actually work and earn a living, someone with HIV could live for another 25 or 30 years um, enough to see their children grown and even their grandchildren. Sure. And that changes the trajectory of a family for for generations.
0: Well, absolutely. And and tell me some about the obstacles that um, you you find in Kenya, not necessarily with the treatment aspect of it, but more in the
3: education and and preventative aspect of of things. Well, you know, in Kenya right now, um, we've come a long way, but there's continuing... uh, Misconceptions about HIV and AIDS, and um, and we we even have our own misconceptions here in the U.S. as well. But we've got to uh, we've got to overcome um, we've got to undo a lot of work that has been uh, done to the people that we serve because the culture, um, families, churches, and um, other institutions have um, more or less discarded those people that have been HIV positive and. As a result, it's—we have to— There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. Um, Their their status becoming known is a big fear. Um, Community is everything for a Kenyan, Um, even more so than us here in the States. Their family and their community— They're really
0: inter-reliant, right? They
3: are. They are. And the biggest fear, I would say, is not even death, but it's being alone. And so you you have uh, to—we have to overcome and and earn the trust of these people who have been hurt so many times— um, but honestly, there's a there's plenty of receptive churches that want to partner with us to help implement our model. They're incredibly talented Kenyan people that are uh, able to execute uh, this work on the ground. Um, and everywhere we've gone, we're in twenty communities throughout Kenya now. And everywhere we go, w- there's people that are receptive to our approach. And so sure. the biggest challenges, I think, lie on this side of the ocean.
0: Okay, so so you're finding that you know most nonprofits don't. Last very long, they don't. That's true. So, in keeping with you finding that more of a battle is here, what else about your model you think has, has given you maybe a little more longevity that other nonprofits can kind of adopt?
3: I think there's a couple things. I think the biggest thing that I've I've learned in this, um, the last six years, is the value of being focused, and not just focused for a short time, but focused over a longer period of time. Um, Many nonprofits, even the most well-intentioned, go to a place like Africa or, you know, India or places like that, and they are so overwhelmed with the needs that exist. Um, it's it's not just HIV. It's it's food. It's it's water. It's shelter. It's you know microenterprise, and they have this feeling that if we don't do it, who will? We need to do it, and they end up spreading themselves too thin. Uh, they become masters of no, you know, one particular area of focus and they end up fizzling out because uh their supporters here aren't clear on what their vision is and uh their work on the ground suffers because they're not focused as well Um, but that focus has to persevere over a period of time it's like our uh jim collins talks about the the flywheel effect is that you have to be pushing on that flywheel and that first rotation may take a long time but if you have that constant focus pushing in the same direction And you're not working against yourself, over time, you'll reach a momentum that will allow the organization to continue. Critical
0: mass kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And
3: and, and I just look around and look at other organizations that have not made it as long as we have. And um, it's, you know, if it wasn't a a leadership issue where there was a, um, you know, obviously the leader is core um, and that leader's character is core to the organization. Sure. But if that's intact, it's usually the organizations that, they either don't do things with excellence or they've lost the focus of what they initially start out to do. So
0: you start laser focused and start small, and then you can start after you get that, you know, that,
3: that wheel spinning, you can kind of branch out and, and figure out what, how else you can help. Right. Absolutely. But to a degree, our model has been the same for six years. And within that model, we are incredibly rigorous at evaluating it and changing it and perfecting it. But Day one, um, uh, in the very early stages of our organization, our directors came to us and said, hey, we've started a small program on Saturday mornings for children in this first community because they don't get a good meal on Saturdays because they're not in school. We want to just feed them and take care of them for the day. That came out of the best of intentions, um, but I knew very early on that we had set out to care for men and women who are parents and help um, transform and empower them. And so I I became the most cold-hearted person ever and said, (laughs) "We're going to kill the children's program. Like we we can no longer allocate our time and resources." It's a tough decision to to
0: make, but it's like in the airplane. You know, when it goes down, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you can help anybody else.
3: Exactly. And so today is no is no different. I mean, we we do have a little bit of momentum. We're still not where we want to be, but at this point, we could we could open a a hospital if we wanted to to extend our care that way. But we believe our scale is going to become through the replication of what we've already learned to do so well. So what we are now doing well in 20 communities, we'd like to do that in 50, 100, 500 communities throughout sure. Africa. That's the vision. Now, your dad is really big on leadership. He is. He's written a couple books. He has. <laughs> and he's one of my heroes.
0: Oh, he said the same thing about you.
3: Well, that it goes both ways. <laughs> well, the apple never falls far from the tree. That's right.
0: They don't. So, so – in, in speaking with the uh, Apple not falling far, what are some things that you think um, leadership plays in that you maybe learned from, from maybe your dad or these experiences that you can pass on maybe to the next generation?
3: Well, I mean, it, it, I think it's very relevant that we have, we're here with Tom today because um, servant leadership is at um, the core of my dad's belief system Absolutely. on leadership. But it's more than just a belief system. It's a lifestyle. And his entire life has been uh, revolving around how can I serve and equip leaders better. And from every talk I've ever heard him give to every book he's written, he has influenced my, my thinking about this. I mean, he has, um, from really understanding the skills of great leaders, which is what his first book was about, to um, how to build a dynamic team of individuals, to even from a young age, the importance of the character of a leader—that's ninety percent of the effectiveness of leaders. Their character, and I think uh, I'm people so,
0: follow people, and it's going to be—they
3: do, right? They do, and it's—it's um, it's that ninety percent of character that um, more times than not will will end up sinking the organization if sure. that, if that character is not intact. So um, he's been a great model for me, and um, and from the start of this organization, he's obviously been a a wise counselor Uh, and a a generous investor (laughs) and all the things that uh, a son could ask for in that regard.
0: So you mentioned you have directors that are, they're in Kenya and and they have to, they're in high valued leadership roles. So finding the right person, speak to that, especially when you're a fledgling organization, maybe not so now, but then like finding the right people for it. What do you look for?
3: Well, um, I have to say that, the way that our paths intersected was uh, completely God ordained and orchestrated. Uh, I didn't put out a notice that I'm looking for two incredible Kenyan guys to help me lead this organization, and I'm not sure we would have ever started if it wasn't for them because they really had the vision before I even really knew what HIV/AIDS was. Right. They just they needed the right partnership to help make that a reality. But uh, you know, I, I like to. I go back to something that uh, Bill Hybels, who is the pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, talks about finding the right people. And I use this when I think about people I want to select for my team. Um, He says that you're looking for for character first. I mentioned the importance of that. Right. Competence second. Um, Unfortunately, in the nonprofit world, um, I think we oftentimes don't focus enough on competence because we see people's great hearts and great intents and great character but we are responsible for a lot to steward resources and create life change, and so competence is key. Um, We also need the chemistry aspect, Um, and spending a month in Kenya that first time with these two Kenyan men, Cornell and Duncan, there was um, obvious character in these men, um, high integrity, and uh, they were men of great competence, they had proved that through their past track record. they're certainly passionate, right? Very passionate. Um, right. They were doing this work anyway. Uh, it wasn't me coming and saying, hey, you should right. think about doing this. They're doing it. They just would like to do it bigger, faster, and more effectively. And that's where you guys came in. And that's in. where I came in. Right. And then the last piece, there's there's character, um, competence, chemistry. And then in our work, there's really a calling aspect. Um, you know, I think we especially in this sector, have to to value our people so highly, as well as in the for-profit sector as well. But um, I think organizations feel sometimes that their people are, you know, interchangeable, and there's other people that can do the job if this person's not doing it well. And and that's true to some degree in our work as well, but um, we take great pride in selecting people that um, they may have all those other qualities, but if they don't feel like they're called to this, because they're going to leave behind right. other opportunities for greater, um, you know, earning capacity. Right. Um, probably less work because we're going to we're going to overwork <laughs> you. you we're going to overwork you and underpay you. Right. But you're going to be fulfilling what you, what you believe you're called to do, and that's that's what I feel like I'm called to do, is be a part of this kind of work.
0: Absolutely. So, for for someone who's going to start a nonprofit, what's the biggest advice that you can give them? Having done it already,
3: you know I think I think any organization. Um, some good friends of mine, uh, in an organization called Praxis, really taught me this. I and mean, I think there's four steps in any process to start an organization. You have to to refine your your concept first, then you have to launch, then you have to prove that what you've launched is effective, and then you can talk about scaling it in the future. Right. And I think a lot of time has to be spent in that concept phase before you launch Um, you may think you have a great idea and um, but you need to to prototype that and you need to seek wise counsel and you need to understand issues relating to uh, what's the economic model for this organization how are we going to structure ourselves is this a for-profit idea is it a non-profit idea is it a hybrid Um, who who needs to be on that founding team that's going to make this happen Um, who needs to be on the board to help leadership uh, who's our you know who's our audience who's our customer right i mean all those questions are kind of business 101 in terms of creating a plan right. but uh, it's vital you know, it's, yeah. it's,
0: it's you think that's the most important step is 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 the planning prior planning
3: yeah and just the and and the research that goes into it and and listening incredibly well before <laughs> you try right. to do something to discern if there isn't even in fact a need i mean i have uh, a friend in the um that has a a for-profit business and he has just said that that was one of the greatest things he struggled with, or he didn't do his due diligence in was actually, he he had a person he knew that needed this particular service, but it wasn't industry wide. And so you have to do the research, um, that goes in on the front end and, um, and and then seek a lot of, a lot of counsel about that and really work out the details. And then, you know, you get to that point and you may launch, um, There's still risk in launching, but that's why it's important to go through that prove stage. Minimize it. Before you, yeah, minimize the risk, um, test it. And, you know, if you end up not being able to make it work after the the launch phase, then there's a little bit lost. But um, you really want to make sure that prove stage is in there before you try to scale something that's not Not scalable. Yeah, and it takes a while. I mean, our concept phase... From the moment I was at a conference in Chicago to our first project opened its doors, about 18 months. Wow. And then, it, I mean, it, it took years to, to prove it. Um, we The first two, three years, we only had about four projects. But after that time, we felt like we had sufficiently proved our model and we were able to go from four centers to, to now 20.
0: And where do you see Care for AIDS in the next five, 10 years?
3: You know, right now we're in a, a, a plan to go to 50 centers by 2017, and um, and God willing that there could be even more growth than that because the need is there. Um, but we believe that there's a, a need for at least 50 of our centers in uh, Kenya and another 50 in Tanzania, and we've already done some studies looking at other places in East Africa and South Africa that um, could support our, our work. And so uh, the big vision is um, you know 100 centers in those two countries sure. and wow. beyond that um, we're going to kind of wait and, and see um, what other opportunities cuz we're we're open to other ways to scale as well uh, right. we we're open to other organizations and and governments and who want to to help us replicate this because it, it's important that we, we provide this service to to people around Africa because we're seeing lives, um, saved and families. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, where can listeners go to learn more and get involved?
3: Uh, they can go to our website, carefraids.org and, uh, they can, there, you, they can find all of our access to, um, Facebook and Twitter and all that. And there's a page there called get involved and right. we'd love for them to do that. And
0: Volunteer, <laughs> donate, whatever.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even go to Kenya. Oh, wow. Uh, we, we take teams, uh, quarterly to Kenya and and that's a uh, it's an important experience Um, not only does it add great value to our people there to have uh, people from the states invest their time and money to come to encourage them and equip them and serve them but it also is incredibly value for anybody that wants to from here to to gain a new perspective and uh, we've seen these trips transform uh, families who've gone together individuals uh, it just it, it gives a, a really good perspective on uh, what's happening in Kenya and uh, it allows people to, to find a way to plug in and serve internationally um, as well as locally here and
2: can, can I just uh, plug in here too yeah uh, sure uh, absolutely I, go I, for it
3: I, I was in South Africa
2: and uh, Johannesburg to feed um, feed the hungry about 20 years ago and when you see what these people have which is absolutely nothing and how, how they have got to break out a lifestyle it, and, it it, it it's completely different from here in the states. I mean, everybody's got the latest iPhones and absolutely, ten car garages and ten TVs. These people have nothing over there, and so the, any resource that people can get to them, it, it's, it's a great thing. And I applaud your work. Yeah, it's it's super
0: so. inspirational, especially for you know someone so young to have done so much already. It, it, that's incredible. And our, our listeners definitely need to get involved and and look at into Carephrases dot com. So.
3: You can go to .com, but also .org. .org, okay, .org, yeah. .org. Sure.
0: Awesome, thanks, Michael. Yeah, well, thanks for coming in the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. you. All right, we'll catch you next time on Midtown Business Radio.